0: Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk Hi, it's really great to see you. My name is Howard. I'm the pastor here of Westminster Chapel. And everyone is welcome in our church family. You're not signing. You're trusting me on that one. Okay. It's great to have you here with us. Happy Christmas to you. It's my privilege to be one of the leaders of this wonderful church family, international church family. Just to say, I'm a dad as well. So if you've got kids here, I'm okay with noise um, from children. But if you're uncomfortable, you can head into the cafe and you'll still be able to be part of the service there. But I thought I would start with one of my children's, or my current well, my, my kids' current favorite Christmas joke. If you don't laugh at it, it's not just me who'll be offended. They might be upset as well. So I'm just, just warning you. And uh, it goes like this. Here's the question. What is the most popular Christmas wine? Here's the answer. I don't like Brussels sprouts. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? It's a wine of a different kind. And I happen to agree, Um, not because I actually don't like the taste of Brussels sprouts with bacon, I think they're quite nice, I just don't like the effect that they have on my body. And I think some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, And I make that comment simply to say that actually when it comes to Christmas and Christianity, there's a lot of bad smells that are out there. And I probably need to start by clearing the air in a sense that there are some so-called Christians who frankly made the Christian faith and the Christmas story stink. From the Crusades to complicity and slavery to forceful, coercive kind of um, colonization and all, all this kind of horrible stuff. And you may have experienced that. You, you may have experienced just a, a not-so-nice Christian in your life. And I just want to say sorry. I am so Sorry if you've been a victim of that. That is not what Christianity is about. Christianity is not about coercion and force, but humility and love. And it smells a lot like frankincense and myrrh. It smells sweet and warm and woody. Christmas is a story about the almighty God Choosing to become small, an embryo, born as a baby, laid in an animal trough, coming from ultimate wealth to incredible poverty. But why? Why did he come on this journey? He came on this journey so that you might know joy, real joy. And we live at a time when I think many of us feel like we've been robbed of happiness. Now, I am not talking about the World Cup, by the way. I'm talking about more significant disappointments in life, and I'm pretty confident that many of you here online, you've been wrestling, you've been in a a match, wrestling match, with all kinds of different disappointments and struggles in your life, well today, this is all about Christmas, God comes as Jesus to offer you joy. And a joy that nothing in this world, no circumstances could ever take away from you. Because it's not a joy of this world. Because like Jesus, he this joy doesn't come from earth. It comes from heaven all the way down. And everyone can experience this joy. Everyone. That's the point of God inviting the three kings or the wise men. We're not actually sure that there were three of them because there were three gifts. We thought that there might be three, but that's not necessarily accurate. But they're more like pagan astrologers. These are people that the the Jews would have despised. They would have looked down upon, turned their noses up at them. But they were invited. Sometimes we need people from a different culture and different skin color to come to expose our own blindness and sin. Christianity is misunderstood in the West as a sort of white, middle-class religion. It's just, no! It's a religion of people of all different tribes and ages and backgrounds and cultures. It always was from the Middle East to Africa. No one's disqualified. Everyone's invited. Whoever you are, whatever your background, whatever you've done, God would invite you today to come on a journey to joy. And it begins in the world of creation. It moves to the word of Christ. And then it finishes in worship. In worship. So the first point I want to make and comes with a question is about the world. What is the world saying to you? It's the question of attention. We live at a time when. There is an economy that has been developed to buy and sell our attention. So it's pretty hard to stay focused, right? But paying attention is incredibly important. My family and I, um, a few years ago, we were returning from a holiday in Portugal. And uh, our friends who we've been staying with, they they warned us that... um, At the airports, different to UK airports, that they've separated security from passport control, immigration. They'd separated out that. But we didn't pay careful enough attention to that. Neither did we pay careful enough attention to the final call, Tanois. And so... When we realized what had gone on, we ran, thinking we were going to our gate to get on the plane. But, oh no, we were going actually to immigration, to passport control, and we were stuck in a queue. And then from there we had to run and charge all the way to the gate to get on board the aeroplane. We were 90 seconds late. The plane would not leave for another 28 minutes and 30 seconds, but they wouldn't let us on board. Not paying attention cost us 2,000 pounds in alternative flights. Yeah, wow. It was costly. We can almost laugh about it now. Still sensitive subject in our home. But what is more costly is ignoring God the creator's clues. He gave the wise men a star Creation speaking so that they could follow and they were rewarded with great joy because they followed creation. Our challenges, we live in a city full of metaphorical light pollution and so we can't see the heavens that declare the glory of God because of all the isms, uh, the individualism and the commercialism and the materialism that block our view. But trust me, God is speaking through creation. God speaks through the complexity of creation, from the expanding universe of billions of galaxies to a single strand of DNA in every human cell. Could that just have come about by by time and chance? Well, don't take my word for it. Take Peter Hermans, he's a, a brilliant mathematician, he's a, one of the pioneers of computing, he sadly died recently, but in his obituary in the Times, he used this word, hardly, he says hardly, that, that's improbable, he's a mathematician, he should know. God also speaks through that inbuilt cry for justice, that outrage that you, you experience towards rape, rape that's wrong everywhere, that, that's, that's there inside you. Is that just a biological adaptation for the good of the group, or is it something more hardwired into you by a moral law giver who's not of this world? And God speaks through music. In fact, I think he reveals the beauty of his nature in music. Have you ever thought about this, that music can fill a space without taking up any space? Or that each note on a soundscape sounds fully and distinctly as its individual note, but yet can pass through all other notes without conflicting those notes? It's an expression of the nature of Jesus Christ. He is fully God and fully man, of God as Trinity, that he is three persons and one being. Someone who understood that was a man called Johann Sebastian Bach. Completely unappreciated in his own lifetime. A great composer. And he said that he he simply plays the music as it's written on a page, but, but God actually makes the music. And so we're going to now listen to a beautiful piece by Bach. It's called Yesu Jesus, Joy of Man of Humanity's Desiring. It's going to be played by, I'm going to say, the amazing Philip. That will annoy him, but sorry. Uh, on our amazing Father Willis organ behind me, getting one of its debuts. It hasn't been played at this level in this setting for some, some time since our refurbishment work. And it is a moment for you just to pause to enjoy this piece of music, to be still, and just for a few few moments, just maybe to reflect on the bigger questions of life. What might God be saying to you? wonderful. My first point then is that there's, there's more to explore and God is inviting you on this journey and it begins in the world of creation and it moves then to the words of Christ, the words about Jesus. So my question here is what or whose words will you trust? It's the question of authority. Now, the United States Naval Institute is said to have recorded this conversation taking place on a foggy night. It goes like this. A signalman spots a light shining on the starboard bow, and he tells his captain this. And the captain says, signal to the light. You are on a collision course for us. Change your course by 20 degrees. The message comes back. No, you change your course by 20 degrees. The captain of the ship is a little bit frustrated by this, so he signals this back. He says, send this message. I am a captain. You change course by 20 degrees. The message comes back. I am a second-class seaman, but I still think you should change your course by 20 degrees. The captain, by this point, is, he's furious, so he sends this signal back. He says, send this message. I am the captain of a battleship. You must change course. The message comes back simply four words. I am a lighthouse. <laughs> the captain ate humble pie, and he changed course. Hold that thought. This star, creation, had led the wise men to the scriptures via Jerusalem and the chief priests and the scribes. And there in that setting they asked the question, where will the promised one be born? And the answer comes from the scriptures. From a prophecy written by the prophet Micah more than 600 years before Jesus would be born. That Jesus, the promised one, would be born in Bethlehem. An amazing fulfillment of a prediction. Jesus actually, he fulfills 300 of these predictions in the first part of the Bible that we call the Old Testament. 29 of them in a single day. And many of them about facts beyond his control, like the place of his birth or the manner of his death. Outside of his control, of course, unless he is God. Why am I saying this? The point that I'm making is that the words of Scripture are supernatural. There's something special about them. They're not just historically credible they don't just get the facts right for the first century from geography to the right rulers who are in authority at the time as we have in this very passage but they are supernatural how do I also know that it's not just prophecies fulfilled because I've experienced it at the age of 20 I knew nothing about the bible Really nothing. I didn't know that it had an old part and a new part. I knew nothing about the Bible. But I did know a few things about the world, and I did not like it. I did not like the way the world judged people by outward appearance. And I thought the only way to be successful and happy in life was to change my physical exterior so people would accept me. I begrudgingly had painful plastic surgery in an attempt to fit in, but it didn't bring me happiness. Then I met my first real Christians at university, and in my first year, I was provoked to pick up a Bible, a Gideon Bible, which was on my dorm room. It had been there lying dormant for some time, and I, I, I picked it up. I didn't know how to read a Bible, um, so I had this thought in my head, God, if you're real, speak to me, and I literally did this with the Bible. I went, closed my eyes, and landed at a point. And I read from 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 7 which says this that the Lord doesn't judge or look at people the way that human beings do human beings look to the outward appearance but God looks to the heart The statistical probability of landing on that verse, which would speak to my story and circumstances so powerfully, is improbable. There are 31,107 verses in the whole of the Bible that I would come to that verse is incredible. In that moment, I knew, God, you're real, and you're speaking to me, and you're challenging me. And I've been judging you and the Christianity Christmas uh, by the outward appearance, not at its heart. I I needed to go on a journey to find real truth. In that moment, I realized that my little t-truth about what I thought about the world was insufficient to his lighthouse capital T-truth. And I needed to change course. I needed to change course. But reading the Bible alone isn't enough. You can't just read it, and I'd encourage you to do that. Don't do what I did, is that I sort of pretended that I knew about the Bible, and then that, before I became a believer, I, I would mock my Christian friends. I would tease them about, you, you serious? You follow, you follow this ancient textbook that's written by Jewish people years ago, and you, you let that Define how you live? I, I would mock them mostly, but the truth was I'd never read it. I didn't know that it was 66 books written over a period of 1,500 years by more than 40 different authors. Crazy diversity, yet miraculously always pointing you to the person of Jesus. Like we see in this passage, this word about Micah as uh, pointing the wise man to the birth of Jesus Christ. The whole Bible is pointing you to the person of Jesus Christ. Have you read the Bible? But again, reading it is not enough. You you need to trust the words that are in the Bible and and act upon them. You see, even the chief priests, the scribes, they knew that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. But they couldn't be bothered to travel seven miles to go and find out. They're shown up by the wise men who've gone a distance towards from Babylon, about a a thousand miles or thereabouts. But these guys, they're not bothered The wise men, though, they acted upon the word of God, and they were rewarded. And as they did so, as they set off by faith, the star moves to the very place where Jesus is. He's now a child. By the way, if you didn't know this, the wise men were late. Anything up to around about two years late, that traditional kind of look at the nativity, it's a little bit of a a crunched period of, of time. Which has made some people ask the question, what would have happened if they were wise women? Um, And I'm told their conclusion is that they would have shown up on time and brought more helpful gifts like wet wipes and food and things like that. Anyway, I'm getting into dangerous territory there. They follow the star, they find the child, it says Jesus, not a baby now, and they fall at his feet and they worship him. And they worship him. This leads to the final point and question worship what or who will you worship it's the question of affection david foster wallace who in his time was described as the most influential and innovative writer of his generation speaking to a graduating class he said this in the day-to-day trenches of adult life there is actually no such thing as atheism there is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual lure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. What or who do you worship? Herod worshipped power. In verse 3 of this passage, we see that he's troubled, more literally, greatly agitated. He's lost all his peace, all his joy, because there's talk of arrival of another king, which is a threat to his own kingship, and he's terrified. He wants to be the center of attention, and he's under threat. He's lost his peace. Sometimes you don't know what you worship until it's threatened and could be taken away from you. And it's in those moments that we discover that we all have a little King Herod inside us that wants to be in control, that wants to be in charge, that would like to tell others what to do, that actually says, no one gets to tell me what to do. But what if we need to be told? What if we're not wise enough, mature enough, experienced enough, clever enough, To save or rescue ourselves. What if we need rescuing from our own mistakes and rebellion? What if we need rescuing from the tyranny of people like Herod and the oppression that they can cause. Or something far worse that he points towards. An evil spiritual being we call Satan. And eternity in his realm called hell. But there's hope. But before we get to that, a little interlude. There was once a cute school nativity play when the wise men came on stage and the parents were really excited, their kids were performing, and the first one comes on and he says, I bring you gold. And then the next one comes along and he says, I give you myrrh." And then the last kid comes on, but he's looking a little bit more awkward and uncomfortable, rather nervous. And it looks like he's forgotten his line. His parents on the front row are mouthing it to him desperately. Is this? And the kid suddenly brainwave. This is what it is. And he shouts out, Frank sent this. It's <laughs> oh, a cheeky joke. As we come to a close, we learn three things about the gifts that the wise men bring about the person of Jesus. The first thing is that they're gifts for a king, gifts for the king of all kings, that's gold. Gold was brought all the way from Sheba to King Solomon when he was king in Israel. And his carriage as a king was perfumed with frankincense and myrrh. And so these wise men or kings are coming and they are casting their crowns before the king of all kings. And in offering these gifts, they are saying, you're our king. We come under your authority. We recognize your authority over us. And we know that in doing that, we'll find joy. The second thing they teach us is that these are priestly gifts. There's only one place in the whole of the Bible where these three come together, and that is in the priest offering incense in the temple. You see, for a priest to do that, the priest in the Old Testament days would have to be anointed with oil, and that oil's main ingredient was myrrh. And then the incense that he would offer, again, key ingredient was frankincense. And the altar of incense that it would be offered upon was made of gold. And we have here a picture that This Jesus is going to grow up, not just to be the great king that we must bow to, but he's also going to be the great high priest, the ultimate intermediary to bring humanity to God, to represent us, to bridge the divide between us and God, to deal with our sin, the the unholiness which is an offense against God which keeps us at bay. And this incense in the Jewish temple is before this most holy place where there is a curtain on it, and Jesus, when he dies on the cross, he rips that curtain in two. He punches a hole so that we have access, even though we're sinners, to the most holy, awesome, almighty God by his blood shed on the cross. The ultimate fragrant offering of incense going up to heaven that gets rid of our stink and our smell for all of our selfishness, all of our unkindness. He punches a hole in death The wages of sin is death and he overcomes it so that we, through faith in him, might live even though we die. And he is our intercessor. He offers our prayers of incense to all who would believe. Our advocate before the throne of heaven saying, I have died. For them, I have died for Howard. You must accept my punishment in his place. You cannot punish him and you must shower love upon him and embrace him. And God the Father is only too willing to do that. These priestly gifts are a picture of an invitation to love and to mercy and to grace in abundance. Do you know it? Have you found it? Because when you find that, you find joy. The final thing that these gifts teach, the third thing... Is their sacrificial gifts. In giving them, the wise men are saying to Jesus, you are our treasure, not these things. Not money, not power, not beauty, not intellect, none of these things, not comfort, none of those things. You're you're our treasure. Is Jesus your treasure? Because when he becomes your treasure, you experience joy. You experience the reality that he died for you because he loves you. That's why he came to demonstrate that on the cross, to suffer, to free you from sin, to free you from wrong thinking and wrong speaking and not acting for those who are in need, for being selfish, to set you free from all of that dirt, guilt and shame, but also to free you from the tyranny of these false things that we worship that oppress us so much. He comes to liberate you and give you joy, joy unspeakable and full of glory in his grace. In his embrace. That's why he came. If you need joy. You need him. How do you find it? Well you follow the stars. You find out more about Jesus by reading the scriptures. And you fall at his feet. In surrender to him. We're going to close now. I'm going to pray. But I'm going to use the words of Jesu, joy of man's desiring. And you might just want to bow your head or whatever you want to do in this moment. It's a moment for you just to be at peace, just to find rest. If you like to check your spiritual pulse to think, where are you at with all of this? And then I'll pray and then we'll sing. Jesu, joy of man's desiring. Holy wisdom. Love most bright, drawn by thee our souls aspiring, soar to uncreated light. Word of God, our flesh that fashioned with the fire of life impassioned, striving still to truth unknown, soaring, dying round the throne. Through the way where hope is guiding, Hark what peaceful music rings where the flock in thee confiding drink of joy from deathless springs. Theirs is beauty's fairest pleasure. Theirs is wisdom's holiest treasure. Thou dost ever lead thine own in the love of joys unknown. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for joy. I thank you for the joy that I found in my university room and subsequently as I met with you in your word that I was accepted, that I was loved, just as I am. And I pray today, envelop every person here with your love, with your peace, with your beauty, with your goodness. May they have the courage like those wise men, to go on this journey to joy. Meet them every step of the way, we pray. Even now as we sing, Lord, and we declare, joy to the world has come, because you came to set us free from sin and darkness and ultimately death. Come, fill this place with your presence. Release joy unspeakable and full of glory. Amen.